Thank you, Paxton and Tiffany and Heather. Adam, new dad on drums over here today. New dad. Exciting stuff happening. Um, man, is everybody well? Good. Just me. All right. Um, hey, Jonah, where we're going to be today. Jonah, week four. Uh, really looking forward to diving in today. We're going to be in Jonah chapter three. So week four, but chapter three is where we're going to be in Jonah uh, today. I had the opportunity the last few weeks uh, to, to walk through this and ultimately see uh, a story that we've seen likely and heard of many, many times. It's, it's very colloquial. We know it just in our life as we grow up. This is a guy who's swallowed by fish, but seeing more and more and more that this story is less and less about him and more about his God, Yahweh, God the Father, and really having the opportunity in the last few weeks to see the gospel in that. We're going to continue uh, that today in just a moment. Hey, before we do, we, we like to try to traditionally take this moment as an opportunity to offer up uh, some corporate prayer together. Um, and look, as I've been reading through Jonah the past few weeks, uh, in some ways, I'd really like for us to pray the same thing in this moment over the next couple of weeks. Um, Jonah's four chapters, a lot of you I know I've, I've spoken with as we've kind of walked through this sermon series together. A lot of you are, have read it. You are reading it uh, in this moment. And you, you know how the story ends already. Uh, that's a good thing. You need that. Um, one of the most challenging aspects of this is seeing this emissary, this messenger, this prophet of God called to go share the very goodness of God, the faithfulness of God, the love of God so reluctantly with these people that he doesn't really think a lot of. These people that, in his mind, are not God's people. These people in Nineveh, this great city, this place, that to Jonah, he just really can't reconcile. He really can't come to terms with how they can be a part of God's family, how God can love them. And I want to be very pointed and very direct, um, and I want to truly say here, preaching to the choir, but it's a preacher in this sense, I guess. Um, I think it's really easy to read Jonah and say, you know what, I, I, I don't really struggle with that, but I think you do. And I know that I do. And I think some of us have lived a life where we've, 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 been taught by God's grace through, through family and, and ministry and being around people and being around the gospel. We've grown up in such a way where we were instructed, we were trained in the way that we should go. But the pride that quite often creeps in there causes us to think that perhaps people outside of us who live lives that don't look like the life that we live, God can't love them as much as he loves us, Right? That we've done the right things and they're doing the wrong things. That God should love us for what we've done. The gospel says no to that. That we have no righteousness of our own. Here's one of the ways I see it playing out uh, in our world right now. Um, I look at people every day. Um, and I'm a big advocate for trying not to look at the internet. To the best of my ability. And many of you are as well. Um, but man, what a divisive time in our country in our community. Um, and I would say 
pretty candidly, I would imagine that probably in our community and here in this place, there are a lot of us, we think like one another, we, we probably have some same passions and desires like one another and things that we long for and that those are gospel-informed. But I've seen so many people who profess Christ be unchristlike to people that are their neighbors. Not their next-door neighbor, but God has designed them as neighbor. How do people know Christ? How do people come to know the Lord? They don't come by losing an argument. Jesus tells us that the world will know us by our love. Now, that doesn't mean endorsement, and that doesn't mean tolerance of sin. That is not what that means. But we got to be a people that loves other people. And when we see sin, recognize in humility that we're sinners also. I'd love for us to take the next couple weeks and pray for what Jesus would call in the Sermon on the Mount, our enemies. And you and I don't think we have them. We, would ne- we don't use those terms in the modern world. We don't say that we have enemies. That sounds like we're literally at war with others. But I think if, if we look into our hard hearts, there is deep room for repentance and growth for all of us. When we look into the brokenness of the world and we go to judgment and we don't go to compassion. In that same sermon, Jesus says, judge not. It's not our job. And could we be a people in this community that loves our neighbor, that loves the person that's different from us, that loves the person that is broken in different ways than us? Could we ask God to reveal our own brokenness to us? And could we be folks only by the power of God's Spirit, so that's what we're going to ask today, God to transform our hearts through His Spirit. To love our neighbors. So this first step, I think, this week is to just recognize that perhaps Jonah might be revealing to you as it's revealing to me that I share more commonality with Jonah than I want to. That I'm less different than Jonah than I thought. And could I be somebody that prays that people would come to know Christ at the 11th hour? Somebody that prays that people that, that have a different lifestyle, that have a different, different view of the world, and ultimately are without Christ, that they would come to Christ no matter what. I love people in such a way that the Lord would use that to do that. Can we take this a moment this morning, just bow our heads and close our eyes for a second? And here's what I'd love for us to do. Can we just ask the Lord, this is heavy, can we just ask the Lord to see if there's any offensive way in us? To use the word of the psalmist, to look into our hearts and see if there's any offensive way in us. And to lead us into repentance, to lead us into the way everlasting. The way where we would love our neighbor. 
we would see people not just as sinners, but as sinners in need of a Savior and be willing to proclaim that goodness to them. Heavenly Father, this morning we confess that our righteousness is not our own, that it comes from you. Only by what you have graciously given to us through faith, by the work, the life, the death, the resurrection of your Son, Jesus Christ. Now indwelling us with your Spirit, Father, you have made us righteous before you, but not through anything that we've done. God, would you look into our hearts, would you reveal to us the places of our pride, the places where we want to win the argument, we want to prove the point. Father, quite frankly, we want to have some sort of identity. God, would you help us to recognize that we have all the identity we could ever have and more in you and in your son, and that that freedom allows me to love my neighbor, to care for the other, to consider not only my own needs, but the interest of others. Father, help us recognize that in living out the gospel, Father, we must first live in it and believe it. That while we were sinners, Father, Jesus Christ died for us. God, as we move through this week, help us contemplate and think on the ways in which we can repent, Father, and the ways in which we can love our neighbor. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, Jonah chapter 3 is where we're going to be today. Jonah chapter 3. And we get to see today, in a very clear way, the God who pursues people, all these people, righteous, unrighteous, people who know him and are steeped in him and who have lived in the environment of the gospel, the truth of God and who he is, like Jonah, and those who have not. And that through the power of God's word, amazing things happen, and truly the gospel is present here. And it starts with a second chance. As we jump in in just a moment in chapter 3, you look at the words, whether they're before you in the scriptures you hold or on the screen, don't miss what's happening as the stage is set here. It's literally like the story is starting over. There's another opportunity, there's another chance, there's this redemptive moment where we actually don't just see a do-over or a redo, but ultimately it's more than about Jonah and his actions. It's really about the pursuit of him by this compassionate and gracious God who redeems even brokenness so that all things will happen according to his sovereign plan that more might come to know and trust in him. Second chance, an amazing thing. That's where we start today in Jonah chapter 3. Jonah chapter 3 beginning in verse 1 says this, 
Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. And let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. This is the word of the Lord to which we say together. Thanks be to God. A second chance. Here's the beautiful thing about this moment that really illustrates not only the picture of God's sovereignty, but the power of his sovereignty and what's taking place in this story to help us understand who this story is about and, and who's in control. It's God. Because Jonah's attempt to flee ultimately had no effect. The story here in chapter 3 in so many ways, is a recapitulation, it's a, it's a renewal, it's a beginning of what happens in chapter 1. Look at the wording, arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, call out the message against it. Compare, look back, in, if you have the scriptures before you, look back to chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, you're going to see the very same language there. So from the outset of these verses, we see the pursuit of God to usher Jonah into his plan, to God's plan. God has not left Jonah That's the beautiful thing that's happening here. We need to see the gospel in this, in this way. This is not Jonah's chance to just get it right. Because I think that that's how we read this and how we see this. This is He messed it up. Now he gets a chance for a do-over. It's his second chance. He could do it again. Do you know what his second chance is? It's his chance to see the goodness of God. It's his chance to see that God is pursuing him and through him... These sailors, these Ninevites, other people, that they might know God's goodness. So this is not Jonah just getting better. This is not Jonah trying to earn God's favor. Instead, this is evidence of God's favor. That he truly has grace upon him. Look at verse 2. He says, the message I tell you. So this is going to be important for what Jonah preaches. God is not vague with Jonah. He's a God of clarity and order. He gives Jonah very specific instructions. Call out against it the message that I tell you. So God is clear with Jonah to do this specific thing. Now look into verse 3, and this is what you see. This city is exceedingly great. Nineveh was an exceedingly great city. What does that mean? We talked about this earlier in chapter 1 in the first week because that same language is used. In chapter 1, it was great city. Here, it is great city. And in verse 3, it's exceedingly great city. 
Here's the thing. We've talked about, from a background standpoint, the size, the mass, the volume of the people in Nineveh. This is a city of about 120,000-ish people in Assyria. So it's one of the three royal cities, people on top of folks. It's a big city at this time in this place. So when we read these words and we read things like exceedingly great, it's natural for us in so many ways to recognize that this is largely pointing to population and groups of people. That's important, but there's more meaning to it there. And the narrator, the author, wants us to see that because the way this word is used, there's a connection with this word in Joshua chapter 2. Or sorry, Joshua chapter 10 and verse 2. Joshua 10, verse 2. The text refers to Gibeon, this other city in the ancient world, as an important city. It describes it as a great city like the royal cities. Same wording. Here's the thing. Gibeon was about two and a half acres. Two and a half acres. It doesn't sound like it, but I'm more of a city boy than a country boy. All right? But I know two and a half acres, not a lot of space for a great city. Something exceedingly important. So something else must be going on here in the way that this story is being told and given to us. Here's what's happening. We're understanding that the greatness that's here is not about size. It's about importance. It's about value, not volume. It's about what this city and ultimately its inhabitants, its people, mean to God. And in this moment, in these words, we're getting a picture of, ultimately, what the entirety of this this book is about, what the scriptures are about. It's about the relationship of people to God. What's happening is God is saying, these people, remember who they are. Wicked, horrible, murderous, slanderous. This is like literally steal and plunder type folks. People who are violently oppressing people consistently. And their behavior is not much better inside with one another. These people are important to God. And this is what Jonah's about. God is pursuing him that through him, the word of the Lord would come to these people. And that they could repent and know him as well. Look at these words, three days journey in breath. This is really important historically because this is what it says. Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days journey in breath. And while breath does mean in some ways this idea of of, it's wide, right? It's a big place. Has anybody ever been to Jacksonville, Florida? It's it's, it's It's just forever. Like you just drive in there and it's forever. It's just one of the widest like cities like it's just the city limits are just huge. It's enormous. You think you're out, you're not. You're still there, right? That's one descriptor of what's happening here. But in another sense, there's more. It is really, really important that we understand that three days journey is not just about geography, but it's actually about protocol. Now you got to remember that this is a royal city. So there's this ancient practice of hospitality. If you, you you read and you look back at historians and understand cities in this time in this culture, Assyrian and otherwise, this is Babylonian, this is Roman culture as well. 
A practice of ancient hospitality is that when an emissary would come or an ambassador would come or someone would come, even a prophet would come, that it's not just he's walking in and it takes him three days to get the thing done. Ultimately, there's a protocol, there's a process. The first day, typically, for people that would come to have a proclamation, to have an announcement, they would do the first day would ultimately be like meetings and, and sort of an investigation of who are you and why are you here. The second day would be the day when, when the proclamation was made or these things were to occur, the, the progress was made as to what was being done. And the third day would be return kind of wrapping up everything. It's really, really important here for a couple of reasons. The way we read this in such a linear fashion, and we read it, I think, in a normal pace, right? But it still feels relatively quickly, because this is what it sounds like. Whale spits up Jonah. Jonah's got whale bile on him. He walks into Nineveh. That's what it looks like, right? That's what it seems like. That he just strolls in, smelling like whale, and goes and preaches. That's not the case. And we don't know the length, the duration of time between the two, but what we would understand culturally is that Jonah, he doesn't just stroll right in. This three-day visit city is telling the readers that this is a city where formal protocol must be observed. And that Jonah is walking into enemy territory in so many ways. He's walking into this place with these people that are violent and he's sitting before them in a vulnerable position in order to give them good news and then return to wherever God has them next. It's also really important to note that these three days, this language is a picture of the one who would bring the best news, the true definition of good news to us through a three-day journey, a three-day visit. The death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's a pointing toward that. We'll see more of that as the passage moves on. Looking at verse 4. Jonah is traveling into the city. So this makes, this makes sense. Going a day's journey and then calling out. So this would help us understand that it's not just he walked for a whole day and then was able to preach. Ultimately, he goes through the protocol. He goes through the processes of the ancient world of, of coming into this land, this foreign place, presenting himself and now declaring these words from God. Jonah calls out and he gives the sermon in what's five Hebrew words, and it says, Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. He spoke what God called him to speak. Now, here's the thing I read this, and in a lot of ways, I'm like, this guy's got it pretty easy. Five words and out. He's done. And a lot of you are thinking like, yeah, I like that guy better. But he's done. It's a simple, it's quick sermon. So we, used to, so we had a dear friend, this guy named Tim Cotton uh, at our church. And he won't mind me saying this. He's not going to listen to the podcast anyway. Um, <laughs> he's, uh, Tim, Tim would, would say truly, there are these moments where we would ask Tim, funny guy, like, what would you preach? Tim has a five-word sermon, truly. He, if, if we, he was called upon, Tim would get up here and he would say, sin bad, God good, amen. He said, he said like, that's, it's not his place, it's not his vibe, it's not his world. He didn't want to be a part of that. Five words. 
God's prophet here is doing the same thing. Five words. And so what I'm inclined to see in some ways is just like, it seems kind of lazy. It seems lethargic. It seems like there's no real emotion behind this. He just gets to the point and says the thing, and then he's out. Like, he doesn't have time to drop the mic. He just says the stuff, and he's gone. But what really, really we need to see here that's happening is not what he says, but it's ultimately what God does. Look into verse 5. This is all we get. This is what happens. The people of Nineveh believed God. This is crazy. This is the most violent, murderous group of people that the world has known to this point, perhaps ever. These people were impaling people on sticks, on large posts. It was actually the precursor, in many ways, historically, to the crucifixion. There's all kinds of, kinds of relics and art and things that depict this from the ancient world. You see this as historical. It's these people that it seems just instantaneous. They believe God. It was that easy. It was that quick. What is happening here? How is that possible? This is essentially in some ways what would seem and appear to be the craziest revival the world's ever seen. 120,000 people, and this is the wild part. They're not just saying they believe. They're actually following through on it. And there's a visible picture, a tangible, palpable picture of what's happening in their hearts. They're wearing sackcloth and they're sitting in ash. This is a picture of mourning. It's a picture of lament in the ancient world. This is a picture of, suffice to say, making nothing of yourself. Not just making nothing of yourself in humility, but in doing so by saying and declaring visibly that you need mercy. That you're at the mercy of another. Now look at this. Think about this. These people who were merciless are now begging for mercy from God. The most merciless, vengeant people in the world are now begging for mercy from God. These people are wearing sackcloth and ash. This is wild. And here is what's even crazier. It happens from the greatest of them, in verse 5 it says, to the least of them. So top to bottom. We are not giving the picture that anyone has opted out of this. That nobody has checked no, that they don't want to receive the emails anymore. This is, this is a holistic thing. This is everyone. Every single person from the greatest to the least is donning sackcloth. They're sitting in ashes. They're mourning. They're lamenting. The destruction that's to come from a righteous God. How does this happen? It doesn't seem like the best sermon I've ever heard. It happens because it's the word of the Lord. It's truly the word of the Lord. This is what Sinclair Ferguson says. Brilliant man, theologian, instructor. This is what he says. Of course it follows that they must have believed Jonah. But they didn't feel that it was the voice of Jonah they heard. 
Jonah gives the word. But it's the word by the very power of God's spirit that changes hearts. The Ninevites, it doesn't matter how cold or, 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 effort, or effortless in a way in which no effort was put forth. It seems that this sermon was calculated direct to the point, whatever. God has transformed their hearts because it's him who is speaking. Even down to, look into verse 6, the king. Look at the king. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. Now, a couple of things to note here. One, he removes himself from a place of authority. He removes himself from the throne. The second thing is he takes off the robe, the thing that would mark him in identifying way as one of importance, as one of value, as somebody who was somebody that mattered. He takes that away. He looks like everybody else and he puts on sackcloth and ash. He himself is praying for mercy and we're going to get a picture of that Right here in verse 7. It says, He issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh by the decree of the king and the nobles. Listen to this, the depth of this. Let neither man nor beast, this is man nor animals, herd nor flock, taste anything. I don't know what it's like to have livestock. Some of you do, all right? I don't know how you get them to not eat. Putting your animals on a fast seems aggressive and challenging. All right? But this is how powerful this is. This is how much of an impression is made upon these people. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands, he says. Douglas Stewart, a commentator who writes in in the Minor Prophets, and, and we'll hear more from him later, but this is what he says about this. And ultimately, what Jonah looks at in astonishment. We'll see in chapter 4 as he looks into the city to see what God will do. But this is what he says about what's happening in this moment. What Jonah was afraid might happen was happening in the most extreme manner possible. This is not just people saying, I'll turn from my sin. It is down to, I I want every animal, everything that provides anything for me, the land that I have, whatever it is, to act out of repentance, out of begging for mercy. And look, animals, it, it's, it's strange, but they're to take part in a lot of cultures, especially ancient ones, in the mourning process. There was this interconnectedness of, of human and animals. Whereas to us, we look at this and we're like, they ain't got no souls. Seriously, what are we doing here? But this is to prove the depth, to see how emphatically God's word is meant to be heard at every level, down into the creation, down into the soil, that it affects absolutely everything. And in verse 9, the king would say this, Who knows? This is his confession. This is his, this is his realization. This is him stating out loud that he's fallible, that he's finite, that he's dependent on another. Who knows? God may turn and relent. Who knows? God knows. 
God is the one who is sovereign. He's the one who is in control. And as we see throughout the scriptures, God is the one who has mercy on who he pleases, even as displeasing as it's going to be to Jonah. That anyone who calls on the name of the Lord, as Paul would write in Romans, can be saved. This is the character and the compassion of God. Look at verse 10. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. This is God, even as we sang earlier, being the promise and the keeper. He is the one who makes the promise, and he is the one who keeps the promise. This is evidence in a couple of different passages that are going to help us see the theme of the Scriptures as a whole. Jeremiah chapter 18, verses 7 and 8. This is the Lord saying, If at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom, so that's, that's, that's Nineveh, that's Assyria, that I will pluck up and break down and destroy it, and if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I intended to do to it. And this is 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 9. It's a New Testament picture of this. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count. Slowness. But is patient toward you. Not wishing that any should perish but that all should reach repentance. This is the word of the Lord to which we say together. Thanks be to God. And we do thank God for this. This compassion this faithfulness to himself and as a result to people. This good news of God's grace and mercy and compassion has always been there. This is why we read the Old Testament to become gospel people, people to whom the good news of Jesus Christ is everything. we got to see Christ everywhere and we can see him truly in the character, the very compassion of God. This is the hope for us that if God's going to relent from destroying the most wicked nation and group of people that the world has ever known, there's hope for us. And quite frankly, not because we're less wicked, but we're wicked too. And he loves us. He cares for us. He longs to pour out his compassion, his grace on us. How does he do it? It's through his word. Look into the passage and look what you see. What is Jonah going to give them? What does he preach? Look at verses 4 and 5. It's the word of the Lord. And what happens? They believe God. And then you see in verses 8 and 9 and 10, all this turn language, they repent. And these things are inextricably tied together. Belief in the recognition of who God is and what he's done leads us to repentance where we would turn from our way and trust in him. Effectually saying, look, I'm going to quit building my life on me. And I'm going to build my life on the foundation of the good news of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. I'm going to build my life on that love, on that foundation. The one who holds all things together. That's why we sing these songs, these gospel songs, to preach this truth of belief in the gospel and repentance. We see this in the gospel of Matthew And here's what I'd like to do. We talked about this, the sign of Jonah last week, but I think it really bears repeating in this moment because we're going to get to see 
not just the sign itself, but the ultimate meaning and how that really ties in with the God who saves us through his word. The God who pursues us, the God who pursues us in his sovereignty and his control, the God who pursues us through salvation, the God who pursues us through his word. This is Matthew chapter 12, verses 38 to 41. Scribes and Pharisees coming, trying to entrap Jesus as they normally do. This is what it says. Then the sum of the scribes and Pharisees answered him saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. But no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh, now I want you to think about the power in this, these horribly violent people, these murderous people, the men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. This is the word of the Lord to which we say, thanks be to God. This is the thing that is greater than Jonah. It's here. It's Jesus himself. It's the very embodiment of the word of God. It's Jesus, the word. I want to I take a minute. I told you this earlier, but I want to um, highlight from something Douglas Stewart writes. He's this guy that, that writes specifically on the minor prophets, um, but he kind of gives, and I think this is Probably the most helpful, succinct, um, beautiful statement surrounding the sign and ultimately the message and what God's word does in saving people and how that all comes through the gospel of Jesus Christ. All right, this is what he says. Jonah was a type of Christ. Now stop right there. We talked about this last week, that Jonah is one who would sacrifice himself, right? He's the man overboard. He, he sacrifices himself so that the sailors might be saved. Ultimately, he believes it's all his fault. He jumps over. So there's this picture of one who would give his life for others. One who would embody and, and dwell in the very monster of the sea, death, Sheol, and go down to the bottom of it only to be given out on the third day, three days later, Right? So there's this picture of the Christ that is to come. Jonah was a type of Christ. And the Ninevites, this is their typology, were a type of the Jews of Jesus' day. Or even people of any unbelieving generation who then take to heart a message of God. So these people that hear the words of God and believe. Jonah was assigned to the Ninevites as a prophet, not as a survivor of drowning. Now think about this. When we read the story, we don't have any indication in the text in Jonah that Jonah actually comes into Nineveh and says, listen, you guys don't know me, and you're not going to believe this. Like my last few days were pretty wild. That's not what happens. At least as the story is narrated, there's no evidence whatsoever that anyone in Nineveh knew about the rescue at sea via the fish. This is important. This is huge. This is powerful. Look at this. What the Ninevites believe in is God, not Jonah. His authority comes from his message, not his experiences. This is the point of the sign in Matthew 12, 41. It is Jesus' message because it bears divine authority. How, does, how, does, how, does the, how do all these people in Nineveh get saved through this guy who's broken, this backsliding prophet, this rebellious guy? Because he gives a word 
of the Lord. It's divine authority. And it's because it's that that people must believe, not any particular proof. The Ninevites likewise showed real faith by believing in God without, and I love the way he states this, an overwhelming, doubt-dispelling, miraculous guarantee that Jonah was God's emissary. They recognized the message, not the messenger, as truthful and acted upon it. Here's what this means. It's not about Jonah. It's really not about the Ninevites. At the core, this story is about the power and the truth and the revelation of the gracious and compassionate God that longs for all people to come to himself. Through his word. That's how it happens. It is truly through God's word. Think about this. Think about the words of the Gospel of John. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God and the Word was God. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And what happens to people who receive, who believe in, who repent, who trust in that Word? To all who did receive Him, who believed in His names, verse 12, He gave the right to become children of God. Jesus, the Word, calls us to repent and believe the gospel. The good news of everything that Jesus has done and all that he is, his life, his death, his resurrection, that offers, offers us the opportunity to be saved from destruction and wrath. Forty days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Do you know what the real wrath, the real destruction they faced that, that brought that upon them? It's their sin. And here's what sin is, and this is why we're going to preach continuously and consistently to believe in the gospel. Because this is what sin is. It is not being violent, it is not being murderous, it is not being adulterous, it is not being hateful, it is not being all of those things. Those are symptoms of the real problem. Here's the real problem. We don't believe that God is who he says he is. Because I don't know about you, and look, we try to help our kids, like, be really clear on what we're supposed to eat and what we're supposed to not eat. But go back to the garden in Genesis, and eating a piece of fruit doesn't seem like a big deal. By the world's standards, this is not Assyrian murder and violence. What it is, at the core of it, is disbelief in God's goodness. It's distrust in Him. So if disbelief is rebellion, what's faithfulness? Belief in the gospel. Trusting in who God is, in who Jesus is, in who the Spirit is. This is the call for us today. Man, what's it, what's it like? How do I live a life of repentance? How do I live a life in which I'm transformed? How do I live a life where I care for my neighbor? How do I live a life where I would truly embody what it means to live as Christ? Believe in the gospel. We need this every moment, every day, every hour. To believe in the goodness of God. That he's good. 
that he's trustworthy. That he has our best interest at heart. That he'll give me my needs. That all riches are in Christ Jesus. You know, we sing this song, like, and it's so exciting to me. We sing this song, we say, when you call my name, I ran out of that grave. How do you get out of that grave? How is that reality? How can we sing this this morning? Because if we've trusted in Christ, our life is hidden in him. So when he comes out of that grave, so do we. Think about this. Carl Bart, people ask him, when were you saved? When did you come to know Jesus? When, when were you saved? This is what he said, 33 AD. That's when I was saved. That's reality. Jonah's starting to get a sense that this salvation stuff is not about him. May God have mercy on us, and can we get that too? It's not about us. We just get to take part in this. And if it's that good, and if it's that real, then guess what you and I will come to? This place where we want our neighbor to have everything that we got. We want that person that's across the aisle to have every benefit that we have. And we'll love them in such a way that we show them that. Truly. It's a redemptive story. Everything here is pointing to Jesus because Jesus is here. He doesn't just give us second chances. He gives us second look at his grace. Second looks at his mercy. Opportunities to believe and repent in him. To trust in him. All right, so do this. Stand with me. As our worship team comes and we close this morning. We're seeing similarities. We're seeing recognitions in who Jonah is, who we are, all of these things. For everything that we are, for every moment that we have, it's really all bound up in this, it's belief in the gospel. So when I obey, it should be because I believe that he's good and he's trustworthy, so I want to obey. And when I fail to obey, it ought to likely be evident to me that I'm failing to see him at his, for who he is. And I'm failing to believe in his goodness. This morning, this might be the first time for you to believe in the gospel, the good news that you're, even though you're a sinner, that Jesus has died for you. That you can have resurrection life in him. This may be the first opportunity for you to believe that. And if it is, I would encourage you to come find me, find Paxton, find Clay, find Brian, find Jason, find any, like find someone here who you've seen here that you know is here, here, and say, man, I'm, I have questions about this. I'm beginning to believe, I'm starting to understand these things, perhaps. The Lord's working on me, maybe. I don't know. Maybe you just go up to him and say, hey, and I feel weird. I don't want to talk about it. That's fine. For many of us, Man, we got the opportunity to believe this for the 
hundredth and thousandth and ten thousandth and hundred thousandth time. To confess together just the truth that we're His. He's in control and He saved us. Nothing we did. And the greatest thing is we don't have to fear because we can't even undo it. What he's done is accomplished. So let's celebrate this morning and seek to sing the words of this song and in a way just truly confess and believe the gospel together. If you will, bow your heads and pray with me. Heavenly Father. Father, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word. God, you have given us your words that proclaim that sinners can be freed. Made righteous, that lost can be found, that dead can be made alive, not because of what we've done, but because of what you've done. Father, you are gracious, you are compassionate, and you have loved us to the end through your son, Jesus. Would you cause us to celebrate that this morning and believe once again all that you are and all that you've done for us. In Jesus' name, amen.